Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. Welcome, everybody, to Nightlight. I have uh, Ken Quiethawk to thank for that lovely in- introduction. Um, we have amazing eclectic and the early 1960s with his partner they founded a rock group that came to be known as the Ripcords. Recording on the Columbia Record label, they achieved stardom with five hits tunes on the Billboard Hot 100 single charts. After that, he achieved a Master of Divinity degree from the United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio, and was ordained as a minister of the United Methodist Church. He served, for the, he served the church for almost 20 years before venturing into academia, where he currently teaches religious studies at Glendale Community, Community College in Arizona. Under their auspices, he previously taught these, um, these classes at Arizona State University. And he is a profoundly gifted man in many different ways, and his journey has been um, unique to say the least. He's written an amazing book called Jesus Gate, which um, I, I have read, and uh, it is it is absolutely a phenomenal book. The, the full title is Jesus Gate: Jesus Gate, A History of Concealment Unraveled, and it it really is eye-opening, interesting, and in, in, enthralling. Uh, but so is his early career. So welcome to the show, Ernie. I, I'm so glad that you, you're going to spend time with us today. Thank you, Barbara. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> I, I, I'm, that's a very interesting intro you have there. Thank with you. With all the music. And who's that talking? Who's the, who's the gentleman that gives the intro? Isn't that a remarkable voice? <laughs> yeah, yeah. His, a, his name is uh, Ken his, Ken is, his name is Ken Quiethawk, and he's a Native American storyteller. Ah, okay. And well, I heard his voice, and I said, that's what I want for the intro. <laughs> that's a good voice. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I, 
I gave him a script. He the last little bit he ad libbed on there for me. Oh, um, is that the one where he calls you beautiful and lovely and wonderful and exciting and just all things like that? <laughs> yeah, I thought I gave him a very spiritually oriented script and then he ends with that. But but <laughs> but I kinda like it, so I left it. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. It's a good one. Uh no, he's up. Now, I, your book I loved, and we will get to it. But, I mean, I remember the, the rip cords, and I remember Hey Little Cobra. And so you represent um, one of my favorite timelines in my lifetime. So we're going to go there first because that's a fascinating story as well. Sure, that'll be fine. We can go anywhere you want. <laughs> okay, um, well, let's. Let's start with, with the ripcords because, um, you know, I, I, I remember American Bandstand and I remember all of the stuff you talk about. And, and it's just, it's so neat to talk to somebody that, that was on the other side of the TV screen, was actually performing and, and met all these people. So how did the ripcords come to be? Well, I'll tell you, I was in, uh, when I graduated from high school, I was at a mall shop across the street from Inglewood High. That's where I went to school. And this fellow that I knew, I didn't know him that well, but his name was Phil Stewart, but we had met in acapella choir. And uh, he was sitting uh, at the, uh, in a booth, and, and I was getting a malt, and so we struck up a conversation, and I found out that he played the guitar. So I asked him, I said, well, you know, I do a little singing. And he said, and then he invited me over to his house. He said, well, let's jam a little bit. So I went over and we started playing. He started playing the guitar and I started singing along with him. And boy, you know, I thought to myself, hey, this sounds pretty good. <laughs> so I, I told Phil, I said, let's go to Hollywood and become stars. You know, I was just kind of joking. Um, uh-huh. But Hollywood wasn't that far away, Barbara. It was only like 10 miles from Inglewood. Oh, okay. And so we uh, we we made a, what is called a dub. It's a little, it's like a plastic record. It's not going to last forever. It's not quite as durable as a regular 45. But uh, but you go into a studio and you cut what is called a dub. It's just a sample of your voice. And so we went in there. We wrote a song called Raindrops, and uh, we recorded it. it. Sounded pretty good. So that's when we started running around. Uh, all over Hollywood trying to get a recording contract. Well, uh, I, you know, it's hard. It's hard to get a recording contract. Yeah. And we, basically we got denied all over the place. So after about, and this went on for years. So after about five years, and I'm going to school all this time because I'm not banking, you know, on on ever doing anything with music. I, it was just more like a hobby. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm going to school while we're doing this, but I'm running around. We're running around Hollywood. After five years, we're exhausted. So that's it. We're going to quit. It's over. It's done. We failed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and then one day I'm sitting that very summer. I'm sitting at my table, and I was always buying 45s. And I'm looking through all these 45s, and I'm saying, "Oh, look, here's Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys and all this stuff." And then I thought to myself, "Hey, Jan and Dean." They're uh, they're recording for a company for a recording company called Dory, and that's in Hollywood. But the label I have here is from Daywin, or actually it was Arwin. They're just the same ones, a publisher, ones, music, ones, record, but same company. 
So mm-hmm. Arwen Records and Beverly Hills. So I'm thinking, well, Beverly Hills, Jan and Dean are not at Arwen anymore. They're over at Dory Records. I'm going to take this dub that Phil and I made. Maybe they need somebody to replace these guys. Kind of uh, <laughs> arrogant, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, well, uh, but you got to take a shot, you know. So I called sure. Phil. I said, Phil, let's go down to Beverly Hills. And we'll, and he was all, no, no, I'm not going to do it, Ernie. I've had it. It's over. Uh, so I went by myself. And I didn't know it at the time, but this was Doris Day's company. So I waltz in there with this dub, and I and the vice president was in, and he listened to it, and he kind of liked it. And he said, well, let's see what we can do with it. We'll get back to you on this. Well, a couple of days later, he called, and uh, he said, you know, uh, I don't think we can use this, but you know what? Doris Day's son, Terry Melcher, he was only about 19 or 20 years of age, but evidently Doris Day, who recorded for Columbia Records, the largest recording company in the world at that time, still is, um, got her son an A&R job there. And that's, A&R means artist and repertoire, meaning he would be a producer of records. And uh-huh. they flew uh, Terry Melcher all the way to New York and uh, and trained him over there and then flew him back to the West Coast. And we ended up being his uh, first group that he was going to try. Uh, at least he was going to audition us. Uh-huh. So they told us at Arwen, you know, this wow, they're going to audition us over at Columbia. <laughs> so Phil <laughs> grabbed his guitar, and I went with him, and we went down there and with just his guitar and, and our voices, that's all, and we just auditioned. So we left Columbia. It's actually the CBS Studios in Hollywood on uh, Sunset Strip. Anyway, uh, we left. We didn't know what was going to happen, you know, probably nothing. And then uh-huh. got a phone call a couple of days later. It was Terry Melcher, and he said, welcome to Columbia Records. Whoa. <laughs> so, we, my gosh, we were going to get a shot. It was unbelievable. And um, so that's how, basically, we got started. And, and when this happened, by the way, I was so excited I don't know if you remember, uh, there was a hair lotion called Brill Cream. Of course, a little dabble do you. Yeah, Brill Cream, a little dabble do you, Brill Cream, you look so debonair. Yeah, so anyway, I had a tube of that on my uh, on the, in the bathroom there, and I went in to, I was so excited, I went in to brush my teeth, and I grabbed that tube by mistake. Oh, and God. I ended up, <laughs> yeah, I know, oh, good Lord, I was brushing my teeth with Brill Cream, it was awful. <laughs> But uh, anyway, that's that's just a little side story. But and we so we got started and we had our first recording session in uh, uh, late in in 1962. We recorded a couple of songs and one of them came out called "Here I Stand," and it it was pretty good. Um, and you can still listen to it. I mean, anybody can Google the song "Here I Stand" or the rip chords, and you'll get all their songs. Um, but it, it, we did pretty well with that, uh, and so that was our first record out, and uh, we landed uh, in the uh, top 100 of Billboard, and so we were on our way. Yep, that's how we mm-hmm. got started. Is that well, too long now, a story? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. So, okay. So it <laughs> you just stop me if I roll on too long. Oh, no, no, no. We got lots of time here. So okay. it was just the two of you, but the pictures on the albums and stuff like that has four of you. I know. And there's actually six of us. 
Okay. <laughs> but, so here's what happened. So Phil and I, we go in and we do Here I Stand. It's just the two of us, and I'm doing the lead, the harmony, the falsetto, and everything. Because Phil, um, he tended to be a baritone, and, and uh, Terry Melcher, our producer, was trying to go for something a little more novel. So I just happened to fit that category. Uh, Phil actually sounded a lot like um, Johnny Cash. Oh, my gosh, he's a double for Johnny Cash. Oh, wow. Uh, when I hear a Johnny Cash song, I think of Phil. I mean, it just sounds so much like him. But this was rock, and so they needed a little more punch. And I could sing falsetto, so that, that was a key there. Because uh, basically the whole song is in falsetto. But anyway, so there's only two of us. The next song we put out was called Gone. Um, and that song was a hot rod song. And at this point, we added another voice. The voice we added was a friend of Terry Melcher. His name was Bruce Johnston. Bruce Johnston, after our uh, group broke up, went on to become a Beach Boy. And he's still with the Beach Boys. Wow. So Yeah, he did. And he also, he was a pretty good songwriter. He wrote the song, um, oh, what is it? Oh, I, I think it was called I Write the Song. The young girl oh, yeah. sing. Yeah, remember they won an, uh, uh, an award uh, for the best song of the year, and so he was he was pretty good. Uh, this guy, but he had a falsetto too. Do you know what a falsetto is? Yeah, real high. A, a voice. Yeah, a real high voice uh, that a guy usually sings. The Beach Boys do it. Jan and Dean did it. You know, we were doing it. A lot of groups do it. So, but he had a particularly high. Very, he could he could hit a note I couldn't hit. It was just above my range. Wow. And uh, so we traded falsettos off and on, depending on, uh, you know, during the course of our recording sessions, depending on the song. But his falsetto was, so on Gone, you can hear his falsetto very clearly. So now we have three voices on that second release. Well, uh, now here's where, we, <laughs> here's where it really gets convoluted. At this point in time... I just am finishing my university training at Long Beach State University, and I'm going into the ministry. So that means I've got to go off to seminary in Ohio. And so uh, the church, uh, they they sort of gave me a, a, well, you know, you can't serve two masters at the same time and all this stuff. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm thinking, and so they're asking me to get out of music and uh so I said, well, I, you know, I don't know. I, okay, I'll leave the group for a little bit anyway to see what happens. So I left the group at that point. Now, and I went back to seminary. Okay, so I'm gone. Now, just like the song, gone. <laughs> Only yes. I'm gone. Uh, and and so now they're they're coming up with their next record. What are they going to put out as under the rip chords? So they're going to put out... Uh, a song called Hey Little Cobra. And Terry uh, got this song, and he liked it. Uh, he he didn't write it, but he, he heard it, and he liked it. So he was going to record that with the group. But the problem is, I'm the lead singer, and I'm not there anymore. And Ooh. Phil couldn't do the rock stuff. So now they're trying to figure out, well, who are we going to get to fill in for Ernie? So Bruce... He, I thought he would be the natural there, but it turns out he didn't do solos either. And it was Terry Melcher that filled in for me on that single. 
And he didn't know it at the time, and nobody knew it at the time, but he turned out to be a great uh, lead singer. <laughs> you know, he's Dorothy's son. He's got a good voice. But up until that time, he really hadn't uh, done anything with it that uh, of any consequence. But, but with this song, and then he and Bruce and Phil then um, – did this song and it 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 was a it great it was one of the five hits that we put on the top 100 and it was it was a big one mm-hmm. um so so the rip chords were really rolling now now the secondary problem was i'm still gone and uh and they're trying to figure out well who's going to go on tour because Bruce and Terry are basically now their producers at Columbia. They're not going to go on tour. They're just there doing the music. And Phil can't go out by himself. <laughs> you no. know? So they hired these two guys. His name was, their names were Rich Rodkin and Arnie Marcus. They hired them to tour with Phil. Now, as far as I can tell, this was a, uh, the first Millie Vanilli group <laughs> I, I don't know if you're familiar with Millie Vanilli. I am. But uh, they, they were a group that, uh, uh, there was a group in the studio recording, and the guys that went on, on stage on tour weren't the real guys that were recording. Uh-huh. So this became kind of a legal, kind of a weird situation. I know we didn't really think about it back then, you know. But uh, so here they went out as the rip chords. They were on bandstand with Dick Clark. They did a movie with... Um, called, uh, oh, gee, I can't remember. Oh, um, something summer. I can't remember what it was. Uh, but anyway, they did a movie with Raquel Welsh, of all people. And uh, so they were out there doing their thing, but they weren't really the ripcords except for Phil. The other two guys were just touring. Um, so anyway, at that point, Phil called me at the school, at the seminary, and he said, Ernie, you got to get back here. You know, this isn't working, all this stuff. We need you back here, and I said, "Well, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can go." <laughs> so I talked. I talked to the bishop of the United Methodist Church, and uh, he gave. He said, "Look, okay, go ahead. We'll give you the okay, not to worry. Uh, I'll take care of this." So off I went, and I came back to Hollywood, and then we. I started recording again. Our next record was um, uh, Three Window Coop. That was also a very big song. Uh, mm-hmm. But the the first four songs were our biggest. Here I stand, gone. Hey little cobra, and three window coop. And uh, then we had another one that came out after that uh, called uh, One Piece Topless Bathing Suit, which sounds risque, but it's not. It's <laughs> it's about a little girl on the beach who's only five years old or something like that. You know, but you don't know that till you get to the end of the song. Uh huh. And uh, so it uh, and uh, it did it, it did okay, but it didn't do you know it wasn't terrific. And uh, and I was still going to school, and right about that time the 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 group sort of broke up. I was graduating from seminary, and I wanted to go full time into ministry. Phil wanted to go into Western country music. Bruce and Terry were busy recording other groups and stuff. Terry actually became a very successful producer at Columbia. And uh, so that's about it. That's a story in a nutshell. <laughs> I did tour a little with uh, Phil and I toured when we started before Bruce and Terry joined in. Uh, we went to San Francisco and did some shows for the DJs up there. And so, yeah, I got a little of that. It was kind of interesting because the girls, 
they kind of go crazy. I don't, I don't know why. Um, I, I don't but, either. I think they just like to scream, to be honest I with think, you. Yeah, something's going on there. I don't know what it is. But I'm, I, we're standing on stage, and they're, you know, and they're down below me, and they're grabbing my my shoes and and my trousers, and they're pulling on me, you know, and everything. <laughs> it was really funny. Um, Listen, that, anyway, that's got to be every that's got to be every guy's dream. Come on. Well, yeah, I suppose. I don't know. I, it's it was kind of scary <laughs> at the time. Well, yeah, I, I I can imagine that too. Yeah. But so, but uh, you know it's what happens after sometimes it gets a little little uh, off oh, key yeah. Uh, yeah and there's a lot of uh, a lot of problems in that business and unfortunately I I didn't get tangled up in all of this but uh, I can see where guys really got themselves in some trouble and there were a lot of drugs and things you know so not that everybody's into that but I'm but the industry is replete with these kind of stories you know. Oh yeah, and and I you know <clears throat> you were in it at a time when it feels like it was really just starting out, so that there was a lot more innocence to it than there is today. Oh, there was yeah, at least in the music part of it. I don't know about the touring aspect. Um, that's uh, that's always been a problem, I think. Uh, but uh, but the music itself was very very innocent. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's. Um, I mean, I I spent a whole afternoon listening to the to the rip chords, and it it really took me back. <laughs> oh yeah, well they sound a lot. You know, we sounded a lot like the Beach Boys, and of course Bruce, who did some of the falsettos. I did about half of them. He did the other half. So he, uh, you know, we do have a lot of the Beach Boys sound in the rip chords music. So oh yeah, there's a lot of but... duplication. Yeah. But it, so. it was, you know, it was absolutely such a, it, it was so much fun to go back and listen to all that music again. It's been a very long time, but I do remember it. So, yeah. you know, yeah. of course, that well, dates you know, me terribly. There's a, uh, which, which, were you listening on the, um, on the internet or did you have a recording or how did you, was it I a was CD? Listening, no, I was listening through Alexa, actually. Oh, Okay. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, there there was a CD that was put out, uh, gosh, I guess about 10 years ago by uh, Sundazed Music, uh, who who uh, got the music from Columbia Records, and uh, <clears throat> they're the official sponsor of our music. And they put together a CD called The Best of the Rip Chords. And you know these other two guys that I told you about that weren't singing on the songs at all, but they were touring with Phil? Yeah. Well, they revised the rip chords uh, back in the early 90s, I believe it was. And uh, they're still out there on the road, uh, you know, passing themselves off as the rip chords. And what people don't understand is that none of the guys that call themselves the rip chords today ever sang a note. <laughs> oh on gosh. on the rip chords music and then they took advantage of the best of the rip chords cd that we put out they put another cd out called the best of the rip chords today ah. so they added today on there and now when people go finding they're trying to find the best of the rip chords sometimes they buy the wrong one because it seems to have the same title Amazing. so it's kind of it's kind of crazy yeah but that's well, the you know that's 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 you know, anybody who's a kid has a dream like that, you know, oh, whether I it's did, singing, yeah. 
I mean, it's, it's to be able to have actually lived your dream for a little while is amazing. So, yeah, it so is. You, it is. But it's so you also, graduate. It's it's also uh, it it can it can discombobulate you. You can get discombobulated. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Um, when you get into that situation in that position, uh, strange things begin to happen in your brain. Um, and sometimes you get above yourself, you know, you, you start thinking you're more than you are without realizing that this is a very transitory, very uh, ephemeral, I guess is the word, uh, a passing situation. It's not going to last forever, but somehow a lot of people, when they get into business, they, they think exactly that. And then there's another problem, too. Uh, once you get into that position, people start gravitating towards you, and you don't know why. Is it because you're on the radio now, or is it because they really like you? Or they, the only people you can depend on are are the people you've had as your friends before you got this notoriety. Exactly. <laughs> Strangely enough, yeah. it's weird. And I can see why some people, if they're in the business long enough, they kind of go nuts. They go crazy, <laughs> or they become conceited, or you know, whatever. Well, but happily, that didn't happen to you. Yeah, no, and no, but I you know, could feel the strain of it. I mean, I want to be honest here. I could feel the strain of it, and I had to. Fortunately, I came from a family who pretty much kept me in line. You know, I'd come in higher than the kite, uh, and my mom would say, "Hey, you got to take out the trash." <laughs> yeah, it does take yeah. you down a notch, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh gosh. I can totally relate to that. But so so you you graduated from seminary. You right. became a minister. Yeah. And you served and you served the church for a very long time. Right, about 18 to 20 years, yeah, after that and mainly in youth work. Um mm-hmm. I just loved youth work and was very I had a lot of success at it. Um fortunately and I uh, it, it was really good. I, I went to the church. Uh, there was a church in Cupertino, California. It was a Methodist church, United Methodist. And um, they had about, it was a small church, and they had about 12 high school kids in the program. And we got it up to like 300, I can tell you exactly, it was 346 uh, high schoolers that, that we finally, that was our high attendance record for one week. And we averaged around 200 a week. So it mm-hmm. was really uh, tremendous. I got as much out of it as I gave, I can tell you that. Those kids were phenomenal. And it was just a, a real blessing all the way around. It was wonderful. Okay, so when you left that, you went into... Yeah, then, then I became a... Then I took a church, a pastor. I, I pastored at um, the Dixon United Methodist Church and the Vallejo uh, up in Northern California, United Methodist Church, and then I got a call from a pastor in uh, Lubbock, Texas, and uh, evidently they had they were making a, uh, a a national search, wide search for a youth minister, and uh, they had heard through the grapevine that I had done pretty good, fantastic job actually with the youth that I'd worked with in several areas, and so. So he contacted me and he said, uh, "Well, if you'd like to come to Lubbock, we'll, uh, you know." And so I, <laughs> but I didn't want to leave Dixon. Uh, that's the church I had at the time. So I said no. So I turned it down. But then two years later, he called me back and he he said, "I'd like to come out to California and talk to you about this." So I said, "Well, 
okay, you can come out and talk to me. So we met at a Mexican restaurant, and <laughs> this was sort of like um, the Godfather scene. You know, I'm sitting in this restaurant, this older <laughs> gentleman's on the other side. He 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 writes something on a piece of pie, a paper, and he folds it, and he passes it across the table to me. We were talking about salary at that at that point. Uh-huh. And I was I was asking you, well, what is this? You know, what's the compensation? So he writes this on a piece of paper, folds it, and shoves it across the table to me. So I grab it, and I open it up, and I'm thinking, holy smoke, this is twice what I'm making right now. I mean, uh-huh. this is double my salary. And I'm thinking, but I don't want to get all excited to make him think like he offered me too much, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to make him feel like, gee, I, I could have got him for less, you know. So I just played along, <laughs> yeah. and I said, well, this this sounds reasonable, you know. And uh, so then I we talked about some other matters. And so anyway, I got hauled off to Lubbock, Texas, for three years, and I served as a youth pastor up there for that uh-huh. time. And that's uh, when I decided after that, and I, I want to do something different. And uh, so, and I was growing increasingly impatient with my own, um, uh, you know, if you if you don't grow mentally or spiritually or however you want to put it, then you're stagnating, you know. And so life should be a process. I mean, you, you should never right. stop growing. And I started wrestling with some of the ideas and concepts that I had had at an earlier age, and I was feeling increasingly uncomfortable with the theology that uh, people wanted me to have as opposed to what I was now beginning to think or to realize. So I, I thought it was, I felt, you know, uh, in order not to be hypocritical, I needed to get out of the ministry at that point and, and do something different. So eventually, though, I did end up in um, in academic studies and uh, and that's what happened. And, but there was an in-between time. I actually went to work for World Book Encyclopedia for a couple <laughs> of years before I went into uh, into the academic community. And and that was that was a hoot. I mean, <laughs> I became a carny. I was <laughs> I was at these uh, you know these shows, home shows, and and uh, all these other. What's the summer when then during the summer? What are these things? fairs? Yeah, the county fairs and all that stuff. So yeah. I had my little booth, and I would be a hurra, hurra, step right up, ladies and gentlemen, get the world book, the number one selling encyclopedia in the world. It outsells Britannica. It outsells, you know, on and on and on. <laughs> and that was fun. I can yeah. see you enjoying that. I, I did, and I became actually. Uh, I don't. I don't want to sound like I'm bragging here, but I, but I became the number one uh, World Book Encyclopedia salesman in Northern California. I sold more encyclopedias than anybody else. Oh wow! <laughs> it was it was fun, but uh, but I, I did have obviously before Google. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, this was way I didn't even I never even heard of. I was I wasn't even into computers. Hardly anybody was at that point. I know. This was, <laughs> this was in the early eighties, nineteen eighties, and you know, it, computers were just. I, I I remember my cousins talking about, oh, how much memory do you have in your computer? Oh, I can add this and I can stick this in there. When I heard all of that, I decided I was going to stay away from computers until they got, <laughs> till they normalized. You know. <laughs> I figured it was like yeah. eventually I could just plug something in and it would work and I wouldn't have to go add things and change things and 
So that's what I did. I didn't get into computers too much later. And actually, the college is the one that made me do it because, you know, once once you get into the academic world, then they they expect you to put your grades and stuff online and all that stuff. So I had to learn, and that's the way yeah. it was. But, but yeah, so I, I sold um, encyclopedias for a while and, and before I went into the uh, teaching. And teaching, I oh, gosh. You know, I enjoyed youth work as a minister so much. It was wonderful. And, and now I'm doing the same thing in another, you know, in another way. I, I just love teaching, and it's so much fun. I love my students. If you Google my name, if you go to ratemyprofessor.com, you can pull me up, and you can see the reviews that I have from my students. But I enjoy them so much. They, you know, as much as I give to them, they give it right back. I, it's just a wonderful occupation. I just love it. I've almost been teaching as long as I've been. I uh, was in ministry. I've been teaching now for eighteen years. Wow. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> so what brought you to the point where you wrote Jesus Gate, which I love, by the way. Oh, good. Well, yeah. Um, well, when I was in seminary. Well, let me let me give you a little bit of my religious background so you can see what happened here. I okay. grew up in, in what is called the Evangelical United Brethren Church. And, Barbara, that church was as, about as fundamentalist as you can get. And, of course, I'm a young kid, so what do I know? So, anyway, it was very fundamentalistic, which is fine. Uh, and and I had a wonderful experiences, camp experiences. The cell, you know, the community there was wonderful. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. But then I went to college, and then I went to the university, and I started taking courses like uh, cultural anthropology and astronomy, and some of these courses. I said, wow, this the world is a lot bigger, and there are a lot more ideas out here than I had first thought of. But but I still retained a lot of the basic Christian beliefs that I grew up with. Well, then I go to seminary. Seminary has a whole bunch of information that I never even heard of before. It's sort of, it was almost like there was a parallel Christianity in the academic community that was not found in the local church. Mm-hmm. And Barbara, the difference was incredible. It was like night and day. I mean, you're thinking, what in the world? How come I never heard of this stuff? All these things they're teaching me in seminary. How come we're not being taught this at the local level? Why isn't this in the church? So I'm sitting there in one of these classrooms at seminary, and we're all talking about this. Well, how come the church, you know, this, that, and the other? And I I happen to say, boy, I'll tell you, one of these days when I leave seminary and I have all this information, I'm going to write a book. Or I'm going to preach about this when I get into the pulpit. I'm going to be telling people about this stuff. And I heard, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. And some of the some of the students who were much more uh, savvy about these kinds of things because they had uh, some of them were older and they'd been around in the church already. Uh, that is preaching already, and and they had gone to they were used to some of this information because they had gone to. Uh, religious institutions that taught this on an academic level. So mm-hmm. uh, so I said, anyway, I said, oh, I'm going to write this down, and I'm going to talk about it in the pulpit, I'm going to preach, and, you know, and, and they started laughing. And I didn't know, what's so funny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boy, and I found out, I'll tell you, when I, when I got my first church and I started, I I, I, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I had a guy 
right in the middle of one of our uh, meetings, he, he stood up. It wasn't in a worship service, but it was one of, in one of our administrative board meetings. He stood up, and he pointed at me, and he called me the Antichrist. He says, you're the Antichrist. <laughs> and luckily, the superintendent of our conference was sitting there, and, and he uh, – and by the way, the guy called me an antichrist, and then he marched out of the room and just left. And the mm-hmm. superintendent got up, and he said, no. He said, Ernie, uh, Ernie, because he had heard me preach that morning, and, and uh, he said, Ernie didn't say anything that we don't believe in the United Methodist Church. And so I dodged that bullet. But I, you, what you find out very quickly is that people are not uh, – People are not uh, receptive of information that challenges cherished, sacred dogmas and doctrines and beliefs that they have, and it becomes very threatening. So it's very hard, and I've started to realize, because we've had this information for like over 300 years, and it, it has yet to get down to the local level. We're doing better. I mean, there's there's a lot of progressive churches now that are teaching this information, and there there are groups out there and writers now that are trying to write this information in language that the layperson can grapple with. Um, so things are changing, but it's very slow. And I'm telling you, you go you go into the wrong church with the wrong message, and they're gonna they're gonna crucify you. It's uh, they're gonna put you on trial. And uh, oh yeah. yeah. And, and accuse you of blasphemy and everything. So, Barbara, it's not easy. I don't, you know, it's 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 a transition that's going on, but it's going to take another hundred years probably to get it done. Oh, at least I I served in the pulpit for five years in a spiritualist you did. church. Where did you serve? Um, in it, it was a spiritualist church in in Greenwich, Connecticut. No kidding. And um, five years, huh? Oh, five years. Yes. Yeah, not a long, long time, but... Um, <clears throat> but Were the but, people receptive of any new ideas you might have, or...? I no longer serve there. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? My belief system changed, and my when my belief system changed, I had to say about religion changed, and and it, it I was no longer synchronistic with their philosophies. Yeah, and that that gets to be a problem. And you either have to help them try to understand and if they don't then you have to you have to get out or you know, you end up uh spouting the things they want to hear and that puts you in a bad situation. It's very uncomfortable. Well actually what I have found is that, that my pulpit now is a blog talk radio program. And yeah. so so that so that now um I put out there my theories, my philosophies, if people like them, they listen. If they don't, they switch to another channel, and nobody gets hurt. So yes. that's right. It, yeah, that's right. It's it's sort of like, you know, I think when you have a message like you do, um, you know, finding the right pulpit for it is, is really um, is necessary because when you have this kind of information, you really have to share it. Yeah, you have you to do, find yeah. a way to share it, and and right. I think one of the one of the things that that you said someplace, and and, and of course I haven't underlined it, so I can't find it. But it, to 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 a certain degree, it was it was the 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 
the people in churches today, for the most part, not everyone, but for the most part, um, are, are, they have the same belief systems and, and the same information is preached at them that has been preached since, since the 1700s. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, most people today, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I, yeah, that was part of the Jesus Gate in my book. Um, the, um, the knowledge gap between scholars of religion today, uh, mainstream scholars I'm talking about, that a mainstream mm-hmm. scholar is someone who doesn't have an axe to grind, not necessarily a believer or not necessarily a non-believer, just somebody who's looking at the historical record and the facts and just commenting on them. Uh, but these are the facts that are very disturbing for some Christians because they seem to contradict a lot of what is held to be sacred. So there is this knowledge gap. And, yeah, people today, most people today are living with a religious mindset that predates the 17th century. That's incredible when you think about it. That means a person is thinking about, in religious terms uh, in ways that people thought about religion prior to the 17th century. Now, if you did that in any other field of thought, I mean, people would laugh at you. I mean, if you were a doctor and you were operating with 17th century understanding of medicine, uh, yeah. you know, you went to the doctor and you said, uh, "You got a headache? Let me put uh, let me put this blood sucking leech on your head. That ought to take care right. of it." And you would say, "What?" <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's uh, or or if in astronomy, if you were thinking with a 17th century mind in astronomy, you would be so far, you'd be obsolete, you'd be so far behind the times, people wouldn't know what you were talking about. And that's what's happened well, I, in in religion. Well, I think what really upsets me so is that with the internet, with so much information available, people don't question and look. People right. don't. You know, it's just, you know, one of the problems, problems, Barbara, with the Internet is that you can find the information is so broad and it it goes to extremes. I can find information now uh, that tries to contradict everything that scholars are talking about. Uh, And and it's, it's done poorly because they're not using good logic and they're not dealing with all the cards. I mean, they don't they don't understand what. This field of thought actually is called biblical criticism, and I hate uh-huh. the word criticism. I wish it had come up with something different. It actually comes from the Greek word kritikos, and kritikos, all that means is to investigate or to analyze. But when you see the word biblical criticism, they think you're going to criticize the Bible. That's, that's not what the science of biblical criticism is about. It's uh it's actually digging into uh, the historical background of the New Testament, for example, how it developed, who are the authors, uh, when was it written. And uh, it doesn't go into, you know, scholars don't go into was Jesus divine or uh, is the Bible infallible or, well, actually that's one they can go into because you can uh, you can logically look at that and uh, ascertain whether or not the Bible is infallible or not. That's easy to determine. But things like, is Jesus divine? Did he save people from sin? Or does God exist? These are spiritual faith issues which science and and scholarship doesn't really deal with. That that's a matter mm-hmm. of faith, not of science or or biblical criticism. But but biblical criticism does it doesn't always tell you what is true. What it helps you to understand is what is false, and from mm-hmm. there you can move on to something uh, more viable. But um, Well, I, I but think this... one of the things, 
somebody told me um, who is a fundamentalist that God wrote the Bible and it's all inspired writings. And when he was done with the Bible, he quit and he's not writing anymore. Uh And and I I just looked at this person and said, you mean for 2000 years or so, nobody's been inspired religiously. And he said, (laughs) yep, that's right. And I said, well, I got to tell you, some of the things I've written are truly inspired um, by spirit. And, and, you know, I, I, I said, that just doesn't make sense to me. I can't accept that. And we got to be careful there because he might come back at you and say, yeah, you were inspired by a demon or something like that. No, it was my son. He didn't dare go there. Oh, uh, good. <laughs> no, that far he wouldn't have gone. But but I think what what really um, blows me away is is I mean you go into how Christianity actually was formed and and you know while most people understand, for instance, the the, the utilizing of the twenty fifth of December for Christmas and the birth of Jesus was on top of pagan holidays and things like that. Now, most people know that and accept right. it. Right, right. But you know, it also it it you know it, there's so many good things in the book. I kind of am. There's so many I want to touch on. Um, I think one of the things that that was so fascinating with how the why the genteels were so accepting of um the story oh, of the, Jesus. Yeah, the Gentiles, yeah. Gentiles, Gentiles. yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Why they were what I mean, now? Why they were so they they accepted the story of Jesus, Son of God, so readily was because they had a pagan foundation and they were fine with a God, you know, who who could be too. Yeah, they were. Yeah, the the what we call the pagan mystery religions surrounded Christianity were there long before Christianity, and they had a lot of the same themes that you find in Christianity. You also would find in these pagan religions, so that sometimes people would ask, well, maybe they influenced the development of Christianity. I mean, they had virgin birth. They had. Uh, mm-hmm. You have virgin birth. They had uh, sacred meals like uh, what we call the Lord's Supper uh, or communion. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, they had uh, baptisms. They had all these things uh, that, and all of this predates uh, predates Christianity. They had the the same character. They had incarnations. You know, they had resurrection accounts of all these gods. This was before Christianity. Oh oh, yeah, uh, my. My 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 late husband was a biblical theologian, and oh, really? at one point at one point he went through all of the stories of the flood, all of the stories of virgin birth, all of the stories of of twelve disciples, and and all. Oh, the you stories mean in other in other works? Is that what you're saying? You mean you, in you other mean well, other, in other other in than other Christianity? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and well, the the, look the at... numbers were horrendous. Yeah, uh, I know, yeah. <laughs> well, let's look at the resurrection account of Jesus, for example. Okay. Um, now, there were, because that's, that's pretty important, or the virgin birth, any of these, but the resurrection accounts, uh, for example, the Romans had a god named Athos. Yeah. And according to their tradition, he was, uh, and, and he, remember, the, and all this predates Christianity. Now, the, this one, uh, Addis, uh, it might be uh, 
comparable to Christianity about the time same time, but the other ones certainly predate. But Attis supposedly was killed on March 22nd and uh, resurrected on the 25th. No, that sounds familiar. And then uh-huh. the Egyptians had Osiris, and supposedly he was uh, executed. He was actually killed on the 17th and resurrected on the 19th, which is even a lot closer to. Uh, to Christianity and Jesus in the tomb because he went in Friday and was resurrected on Sunday. So it wasn't three mm-hmm. full days. Um, but So the 17th and the 19th would be very comparable. The Greeks had a god called uh, Adonis, and we don't know the dates, that, but we do have a papyrus that tells us he, was, he resurrected three days later. And then the Persians had a god named Mithra, uh, yeah. which the Romans adopted. They put an S on the end, and now he's known as either Mithra or Mithras. It sounds feminine, but Mithra was a male. Um, but he was, this guy, and this is 500 years before Jesus. This guy was born of a virgin. He was born in a cave-like uh, setting with a manger. He had shepherds. He, he could perform miracles. I mean, all kinds of, I mean, so now the scholar, all the scholar does is note this Barbara, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He doesn't make a decision as to, but but what this tells us is one thing that a scholar can say, and that is that Christianity did not develop in a vacuum. I mean, all of these religions, these pagan religions, surrounded Christianity and predate Christianity. So the scholar and everybody else naturally has to ask, I wonder how much influence these concepts and ideas had on Christianity. You can't you can't get away from that question. But they yeah. don't answer the question. That's not the scholar's prerogative. Uh, I mean, I can do it. Uh, you know, it depends on who the scholar's writing for. But in a textbook like we use uh, at the college, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the text doesn't go into, well, does that mean that Jesus wasn't the Son of God or this, that, and the other. It can only tell us these facts that I'm quoting to you. That's all we know is that this is what happened. And that's only one, you know, that's only one little slice that comes from biblical criticism that most people don't know. They don't, nobody's told them. So there's nothing to think about unless you cannot reason but from what you know. How right. true is that? You cannot oh. reason but from what you know. Now, I have another question that sort of has always bugged me just a little. If it weren't for Constantine... Right. Would there be a Bible? Yes. The question is, would there be a Christianity? Ah, okay. Yeah, the Bible. There, there were books written already, and they were circulating. Here's what. Now, for the, for your listeners who don't know, Constantine was a, a Roman emperor, and he lived in the fourth century, meaning the early three hundreds, uh, and. Uh, he converted to Christianity, sort of. He still worshipped some of the pagan gods, but he did convert to Christianity. <laughs> and, Conveniently, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he was he was trying, he wanted, he was so impressed by Christianity. What happened was he had a vision. And he looked up in the sky or it was a dream or something, but there was up in the clouds, there was the, the cross, the symbol of the cross that he saw. And underneath, it said, in this sign, you shall conquer. So he took the cross and he put it on the shields of all his soldiers. And when they went into battle, they never lost. 
So we thought, wow, this God that the Christians have, he's pretty powerful, because that's the way they used to think in those days. Right. So he elevated Christianity. He didn't make it a state religion. That doesn't happen until Theodosius the Great in 382, but we're mm-hmm. in 325 right now. And what he did was he, he elevated Christianity to the highest point in the kingdom. It became the number one religion. But there was a problem, Barbara. There was a huge problem. Because Christianity, this is in the 300s now. This is 300 years after Jesus has died. Yeah. So the the problem is we have Christian groups all over the Mediterranean world, in Turkey, Syria, uh, Egypt, you know, uh, Jordan. I mean, some of these countries weren't called, didn't have those names uh, but at yeah. that time. But anyway, um <clears throat> They didn't have a unified understanding or definition of Jesus. They were all over the map. They didn't know who who is this Jesus. And we had all these different Christian groups. We had the Gnostics who believed that, uh, well, they didn't accept a literal interpretation of the resurrection. We had the uh, Marcionites. They thought that uh, Jesus was not human. He was divine. Then we have the Ebionites who thought just the opposite. No, no, Jesus was all human. He was uh, he was not divine. The Marcionites thought that he was divine, not human, but the Ebionites thought just the opposite. Then we have the Arians, uh, Arianism, who this guy Arius, he had an idea. He said that you can't be calling Jesus divine. You can't, well, you can call him divine, but you can't say he's God. That's blasphemy. And so he thought that Jesus sort of like was a mediator between God and man. And so, but the, the, these guys were all, then we have the adoptionists. They said Jesus was all human. But because he lived such a sinless life, that that God adopted him as his son. So that's another group. <laughs> then okay. we had the modalist, And they said there, there's no trinity. Uh, there's only one God, not a trinity. So that that can't work. God is more like a... Modalism, meaning that you wear a mask, you know, like now you're Jesus and now you take that mask off and now you're God and you take that mask off and now you're the Holy Spirit. But you're the, you're only one with with different presentations, personas. Mm-hmm. And then we had the Montanists and the Nestorians, the Monophysites, all these, all these groups, and, and no one defined Jesus in the same way. Well, Constantine... Constantine Barber said to himself, this is madness. If I'm going to make this, we we don't even know what this religion says. So he convened a great, uh, what is called the Council of Nicaea, which Mm -hmm. is uh, uh, right near Istanbul. Today it's uh, the capital of Turkey. Back then it was Constantinople. Actually it was Byzantium. They kept changing the name. But anyway, um, so he called, he convenes bishops from all over the Mediterranean world, from the church. They all convene. They're going to settle this question as to who Jesus is. Mind you now, this is 300 years after. So they all get together, and Constantine puts forward this, uh, you know, he's in the midst of all these differing groups who are yelling and screaming, no, Jesus was this, no, Jesus was this, no. So he finally says, he throws out this word, it's a Greek word called homeomousius, and I probably did not pronounce it at all right. All I know is it's got a lot of O's and a lot of S's and whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> he, throw, he throws that word out. The word itself meant of the same substance. When he's talking about Jesus, he throws out this word, and what he's saying is that Jesus and God 
are of the same substance. This is nailing down now the Trinitarian concept. Because okay. if Jesus said, now, now we have a Godhead and uh, with Jesus and God, and then later at another council, this comes later, at the Council of Constantinople in 381, then they, uh, then they bring in the Holy Spirit, the equality of the Holy Spirit. And uh, there's one more council they hold in 451 called the Council of Chalcedon where they smooth it out just a little more. But it's, it's, that, it's that Nicene Creed that they came up with at the Council of Nicaea in 325 that is the basic standard of Trinitarianism. And uh, that's where Jesus and God become associated as equally. And uh, Arius, of course, who had Arianism, say, no, you can't say that. God, you can't say Jesus is co-eternal and co-equal with God. That's blasphemy. But they overrode him, you know, and they came up with, mm-hmm. who's going to argue with the emperor? So Constantine, yeah, not many. No, no, no. And so Constantine made... Christianity, the ultimate, and not only that, if you didn't toe the line, this is when we solidify orthodoxy. Uh, from that point on, if you said anything different or contrary to the Nicene Creed or to the belief that was established there, then you were you were in trouble, and you could be you could lose your life. You would be executed. Yeah, you were a heretic. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't long before somebody was executed. Um, Trying to think of Quite the guy's a few, name. actually. Yeah, but the first Christian to be killed by other Christians, I'm trying to think of what his name was. Uh, it was in 381. He and six of his followers were beheaded because they had challenged, they had challenged the um, the the concept of the Trinity. And boy, and that was the first time the Christians killed other Christians. It was around 381. Trying to Not too Christian name. of Priscillian. them, actually. Priscillian. His name, I'm okay. sorry, what would you say? Wasn't too Christian of them. No, <laughs> no, it wasn't, Barbara. Priscillian was his name. Yep, Priscillian okay. and his followers. Yeah, he was. he's the one that was executed. So, uh, yeah, from that time forward, you know, it's heresy, it's what it's called. And you couldn't, you, you, and then during the Middle Ages, of course, they executed all kinds of people for heresy, if you didn't believe oh, yeah. what the church taught, I mean, you were in real trouble. Not to mention the witchcraft trials that went on. Oh, my gosh. We lost, as best we can tell, there must have been millions of women who lost their lives, all ages, by the way. And, um, you know, generation after generation of children saw their mothers burn at the stake. I mean, this was madness. It, it was crazy. But, you know, what I tell my students, because they have a tendency to look at all the negative things about religion, but I have to remind them that religion has given us wonderful things as well, in terms of education and music and spirituality and comfort. And I mean, there's all kinds of things that that it, it, it's sort of like uh, I tell my students that uh, religion is sort of paradoxical. A paradox meaning that you have two concepts or two ideas that seem to contradict themselves, and somehow. Christianity, for example, and Islam and Judaism, they offer so many wonderful good things, and then on the other hand, they they offer they offer they offer love, but then they give you hate. They give you education, and they give you ignorance, and they it's like night and day they bounce back and forth. And I always ask my students, why is it that religion is paradoxical this way? 
so good on the one hand and so terrible on the other hand because we have lost a lot of lives to you know things that uh, in the name of god we've killed a lot of people uh but on the oh, other yeah. hand a lot of people have benefited from religion in enormous ways and beautiful ways so I ask my students, why why is religion so paradoxical? So one way one way and one way the other way, and of course they they have a hard time answering the question. But it's a really easy answer. the The reason that it's paradoxical is because religion is composed of people, and people are paradoxical. It's us. Because if we look inside our own hearts, you know, we, we can be loving, we can be generous, we can be kind, we can be wonderful human beings. But on the other hand, <laughs> we can be jealous, we can be greedy, we can be hateful, we can be biased. These things pop out. So humans are paradoxical. Obviously, religion is going to be paradoxical. And sometimes it's writing on all the best cylinders, and sometimes it falls into hypocrisy and madness. Uh, so, uh, anyway. I, I, I have a question somebody typed in. And oh, okay. he, he said he, he wondered if the religions got started when the priestly class started to simplify what the prophets originally taught. Uh, is he talking about the prophets of the Old Testament, I wonder? Yes. Um Okay, read me the question again now. I wonder if the religions got started when the priestly class started to simplify what the prophets originally taught. Well, actually, uh, the priests didn't simplify it. They exacerbated it. They made it worse. <laughs> in, other, in other words, you start all religions and religious thought, and it all starts out very simplistically. And then it begins to build on itself. And in Christianity, for example, uh, we have the priest, for example, in Judaism, which later, after the time of Jesus, become rabbis, uh, and the teachers, but sort of the same thing. And um, but but as as you can see the timeline that the religion becomes more and more and more complicated. Uh, religions build on themselves, and they build on the religions that precede them. This is actually a technique called syncretism, uh, which is generally used primarily for just religion. And syncretism basically means that uh, one religion will borrow and and uh, change, modify, uh, add to rituals and concepts of a former religion and make it something totally new, but it's much more complex than the original. And priests and ministers and everybody does this as we go along because it's evolution. That's what, Think of it this way. The Model T car, the beginning of religion, compared to what we have on the road today, it just gets more and more serious and more complex as we go along. Mm-hmm. So, um, so my answer to to his question would basically be that if we reverse those, uh, then it then it would be true. I think. Well, you know, it it's. What you said is true, but that hasn't happened to religions from the pulpit for sure. Because well, well, here here's the thing. If you look, well, how, where did Christianity come? This is what I call syncretism. Okay, uh, Christianity. Where does it come from? It comes from Judaism. So think of it as a waterfall. You have one waterfall spills over. 
So you have Judaism spilling over into Christianity. Then you have Christianity spilling over into Islam. A lot of people don't realize that Islam, Christianity, and Judaism are are all connected. Is mm-hmm. Christianity derives from Judaism? Islam derives from Christianity and Islam. It just it just they just connected. It's it's one building onto the other. And the Muslims, uh, Islam, they they basically because they came 600 years in 622, they they that's when Islam gets started. Uh, uh, A.D. 622 A.D. That's almost 600 years after the time of Jesus. Why do we need another religion? Well, because they thought uh, that Christianity had perverted the concept of monotheism. Islam yeah. is very monotheistic centered, and they felt that uh, because when you start talking about the Trinity, now you've got a Godhead, and if you've got a Godhead, you've moved from the singular to the plural. And and now you have three gods, according to the Muslim. I mean, Christians would argue they would they would, you know, phrase this a little yeah. differently. But the Jews and the Muslims definitely think that we have, uh, as Christians, have, uh, you know, um, misused that uh, trinitarian concept. They have perverted monotheism, is what what they're saying. They got a point. I mean, <laughs> no, I was just going to say, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, they got a point. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read the Trinitarian or the uh, Nicene Creed or the Trinitarian Creed. Uh, I'm telling you, it, uh, it, I, man, when you read that thing, now I don't know what it was like in Greek because originally it was written in Greek, but reading mm-hmm. it in English, I don't know what the. I halfway through it, I don't know what they're talking about. It's the one is the two, but the two aren't the one, and the one should be the three, and this, that, and the other, and this was before, and this was after, but it should have been, and could have been, and would have been, and might have been. I mean, you go through that, and you're thinking, what is all this? But, but Barbara, to be fair to religion, religion is always trying to explain the unexplainable. Mm-hmm. All we can do is couch what we think is truth in the best language that we have, and the language is insufficient to clearly picture the mystery that we're dealing with. So uh, mythology and some of these doctrines are are naturally uh, very metaphysical, hard to understand, and beyond the physical, meaning the supernatural, but they're hard to understand, and uh, and rightly so. I mean, if we knew the mystery, then there wouldn't be a mystery, and then we'd have all the answers, and then we'd be God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're never going to get gonna, there. Not this yeah. year. Um, not this year. Well, no, no. Well, I think what, what, what gets to me is that when you, when you, when you, you take away the, the, the mythology, when you take away um, – the absolutes that the churches and religions right. give to you, the, the and, dogma, and you, yeah. yeah, and you just look at um, even even the first four books of the New Testament—Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John—and um, I know I said that as most people will think that's wrong, but that's the order in which they were written, kind of. And when you start to understand that those four books. Um, you know, weren't even the earliest books written. You know, it was Paul's stuff that, that was earlier than those. And when you, begin right. to un- when you begin to understand that 
what's being put together are, are, are not, it's not a flow of information. It's, no. it, it's like, it's like taking an article from Playboy and an article from Reader's Digest and an article from Sports Illustrated and trying to make them fit together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're, you're spot on. Um, you, you know, we can take the virgin birth as an example. Okay. Now, all of Paul's writings, and a lot of people don't realize this, like he said, because the books are not in the order they're written in the New Testament. The Gospels are written much later than Paul's writings. So you have all of Paul's epistles, meaning letters. You have all these letters that Paul wrote to some of his churches that he had established in the Mediterranean world. So he's sending out these letters in response to questions they had. Um, In all of these letters... Now, his writings uh, occur somewhere, and I'm going to round out the figures here, between 50 A.D. and 65. Mm-hmm. The first gospel to be written was Mark, even though it doesn't appear that way in the New Testament. Matthew appears first. The only reason Matthew appears first is because it's a longer gospel, and it incorporates both the birth of Jesus and the resurrection appearances. Mark doesn't have that. So they figured, the early church figured, well, this is a better story, so we'll put Matthew first. But actually, Mark was written first. And Mark doesn't say anything about the virgin birth. It was written in 70, approximately. Now, there's give and take on this, depending on who you read, but generally around 70 A.D. But the epistles, Paul's writings, were between 50 and 65, so they predate the first gospel. But but Mark, I mean, uh, Paul, doesn't say anything about a virgin birth. He does say, I think it's in Ephesians, but he does say, the only thing he says about the birth of Jesus is that he was, that Jesus was born of a woman. Good guess. Yeah. <laughs> but he was, born, a, <laughs> he okay. was born of a woman. That's all he says. And Mark comes along in 70 A.D., and says nothing about the birth of Jesus. He starts with Jesus as an adult. Matthew finally puts in the virgin birth story. But his book was written around 80. Well, this but didn't is about he, Didn't he get some of that wasn't he wasn't he stealing from the Old Testament with some of that though? Well, no, we don't we don't we don't say stealing. Borrowing? <laughs> Borrowing? Borrowing, that's better, yeah. Yeah, he's he's quoting from Isaiah. Behold, um, a virgin shall conceive, and he he misquotes it. Uh, He misquotes the Isaiah passage. The Isaiah passage doesn't say virgin. The Isaiah passage in the Old Testament says young woman. But he's not quoting from the Hebrew text, the original text. He's quoting from uh, the, the Septuagint which is a translation uh-huh. of the Hebrew text. And in that translation, it uses the word virgin instead of young woman. This is why these things get all messed up. So when Matthew is going back, if he had gone back to the Hebrew text, he would have noticed that it said young woman. But he went to the translation text and it said virgin. So he quotes from there. It ends up in the New Testament. People think, well, that's scripture. That's that's you know, and that's sacred teaching. So Jesus was born of a virgin. Well, not so, if you go so, back to Isaiah, the original text. And there's so been a lot of argument on this, by the way, the virgin, as to whether the young woman is actually a young woman in Isaiah, even in the Hebrew text. 
But scholars now almost to uh, almost to 100 percent have come to realize that, yeah, the, the translation is young woman in the original Hebrew text, not virgin. So, so Matthew, that concept that concept that we're taught is is kind of possibly a typo. No, it's not a typo. Oh, you mean, well, depend. no, the translation from the Septuagint, uh, they made, uh, we don't know why that they put virgin instead of young woman. That, that's okay. a mistranslation. But when you see it in Matthew, Matthew's just doing what he thinks is right. He's, he's just, he's just put in, pulling the translation out of Septuagint and putting it in, a new, in his own writing. But the problem is that the Septuagint is wrong. And that makes Matthew wrong. But scholars, and that means, yeah, and that means what we what 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 the church has been teaching for a very long time is is off by a bit. Yeah, it's off by a, a, a bit. Now here here's the here's the good side and the bad side of that. The okay. bad side is that people try to look at that literally. They they got to have this literally. Jesus had to be born, or it's no good. Something's wrong here. And yeah. they don't realize that it can be. It doesn't matter whether Jesus was born of a. What is Matthew trying to say? This this is the question that people should be asking. Matthew's trying to say. Well, let me let me put it this way: At the time that Jesus lived, anyone, anyone who was anyone, had to be born of a virgin. Period. You got. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all of these guys, well, not all of those, let's see, it was Plato, it was Augustus, the emperor of Rome, he was born of a virgin. Um, there was, uh, Pythagoras was born of a virgin. Anyone who was anyone had to be born of a virgin, not just in the time okay. of Jesus, but, but thereafter, too. Because what this did was it, it was telling the people of that time, hey, listen, pay attention, this guy is special. It doesn't matter whether he was really born of a virgin or not. The point is, they're trying to tell you this guy is important. It had to be on your resume. And if Jesus <laughs> wasn't born of a virgin, he wouldn't even qualify with the big stars of the day. Oh, my so, God. So that's the good side of it, that Matthew's trying to tell us something. He's important. This is a special person. You've got to pay attention here. But if you try okay. to take it literally... You're you're trying to take something literally that's been mistranslated from the Septuagint, which wasn't doesn't go back to the original, and people get all bent out of shape when they when they see this or learn this. It's a real problem. It shouldn't be. It's just one of those things. Now, scholar, you you might ask, well, why don't the scholars, if the scholars know Matthew made a mistake, why don't they just change the virgin back to young woman? Yeah, but. But they can't do that, because then they wouldn't be giving you what Matthew wrote. If we start changing the text, we're not giving you the original Bible. We're giving you what well, we think the mistake here, well, we'll change that. No, you can't change You've got to leave it the way it was written. But wait a minute. There, there are parts of the Bible that have been put in after the fact. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but those are those you can recognize. Oh, okay. See, Matt, Matthew, that the virgin story is does come from our earliest uh, documents. That that Matthew did write that, as far as we could tell. But there are other pieces of the Bible that we have in hand now that we know were not part of the originals. And the reason we know that is because so we can compare 
third century manuscripts with fourth century man- everybody was writing these by hand you know they're copying them we don't have uh-huh. we don't have xerox or anything or copy machines or anything like that so they have to handwrite every bible over the over 15 centuries this occurs until the printing press after the printing press everything stays the same but but over the years we we can compare an 8th century manuscript with a 3rd century manuscript Oh, look what happened here in the 8th century manuscript. Oh, my gosh, they changed it, or they added something. The Lord's Prayer, for example, in the King James Version of the Bible that was produced in 1611, I think. And Anyway, that's, a, that's one of our first transla- uh, re- uh, uh, printed works. Well, in there it says the Lord's Prayer. Everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. for, the, And the ending of the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. you won't find that in our new translations. They leave it out. They won't put that in there. Why? Because they found out that our oldest manuscripts don't have that rendition. That was something that was added in the, around the 10th century in one of the copies. Somebody somebody was copying, and they thought, oh, we'll put this in there. This sounds good. Or it might have been it in the margin. Better, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and but when we compare them back to the as close as we can get to the originals, because we don't even have the originals, by the way, and a lot of people don't realize that. The early any of the texts, any none, of them? none, none of them. The earliest gospel we have uh, of Mark was is around two fifty. Well, that's a couple hundred years, and people have been copying this, you know, manuscript over the last for the for two hundred years before we even see what the thing was. And if if you look at what happened after two fifty, we can see the changes are occurring. The, the manuscripts are continue. Here, let me let me put it to you the way one of the scholars put it. He said, "There we have right now about five thousand seven hundred." Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Because remember, we're talking about centuries of people copying, recopying, recopying, yeah. recopying. So we have about 5,700. <laughs> and and he put it this way. He said, you can't find one chapter in any of these thousands of Greek manuscripts that will agree with each other. That's a little scary. And, it is scary. Now, let me put that in perspective so you don't freak out, <laughs> so your <laughs> listeners don't get too upset. Uh, the, some of these are so minor, you know, a misspelled word, a comma in the wrong place, or some, you know, I mean, some of them are minor. Some of them are major. Some some of these additions and, and changes are major. Uh, but mostly of, of all, uh, having said that, a lot of them are just inconsequential. They really don't do anything or change the text or the meaning of the text. But there are some things in there that have really been changed, and 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 that's good to know because the new translations are giving you a better idea of what the originals said, at least as close as we can get back to the originals. And you don't want a Bible with things that have been added in the seventh century or the ninth century that had nothing to do with the original text. So these new translations are good. And uh, and we need we'll keep doing that as time goes along as we find new books and new new old text and yeah they'll well, they'll have to keep revising. What's the harm in putting back in the apocrypha or putting in some Actually, of the? 
Yeah, uh, there's no harm in it. Actually, most of the new translations now have the Apocrypha. But but here's the thing. The Apocrypha, um, for those of you who don't know what the Apocrypha is, the Apocrypha is about, oh, somewhere, it depends on how you divvy these books up, but somewhere, I'm going to say around 13 or 14 books, texts, um, that are not in the Bible per se. That That's not, let me rephrase that. In the Catholic Bible, the Apocrypha, is included. The Apocrypha are those books that were written between uh, the writing of the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament. That's the time frame in which these books, they're a little overlapping, but that's a time frame basically. So the Catholics have the Apocrypha, they have the Old Testament, then they have these uh, books, uh, like one's called Maccabees 1, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, uh, there's, uh, oh gosh, I, I forget the other books, the names of them. Um, I have to think about that. But anyway, there's all these books that most people haven't heard of. They're in the center of the Catholic Bible, and then you have the New Testament. So for the Catholics, the Apocrypha is sacred literature. For non-Catholics, I hear uh-huh. a phone. For non-Catholic, yes. uh, it, it's not sacred literature. Non-Catholics, mm-hmm. uh, Protestants, do not believe that the Apocrypha uh, rises to the level of sacred literature. Catholics differ with that, and so they have it. So a Catholic would know the Apocrypha. Uh, Protestants are now coming to grips with it because now they're including the Apocrypha, not in the middle of the Bible as sacred text, but as at the end of it as a you know the sort of a an uh, ending feature that you can find in some new translations where they let you see what the apocrypha is but it's kind of interesting there's just a lot of books in there and, um that deal with uh, a, a different timeline and and other stories that you don't find in the in the old testament you could think of it well, as what, an extension of the old testament well yeah but what about um what about there are so many texts out there um you mean like the non-canonical gospels or the new testament gospels that don't end up in the new testament yeah and you know what dead sea scrolls all of that stuff i mean okay the dead sea scrolls they're not uh they're not a christian doctrine i mean they're not the christian literature um, mm-hmm. They're basically about the Essenes. The Essenes was uh, they were a group of people who uh, lived at the time of Jesus or around that time that were really disgruntled with um, with uh, the Trump administration. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> in other words, they were not happy with the rabbis how they were running the synagogue and and all this stuff or the priest, I should say. Uh, mm-hmm. how they were running the synagogue and all this. So they just up and left, and they went to uh, what is called the, uh, uh, well, the Essenes went to the, oh, gosh, uh, they're up there. Qumran? The yeah, thank you. Say that again. Qumran. Qumran, yeah, Qumran, yeah, the Qumran community. So they're up on this mountaintop and uh, looking over the Dead Sea, and they've isolated themselves, and they, eventually the Romans have to come and get them, and uh, and they do. Uh, and and the group finally disappears. But in the meantime, they had written all these uh, what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it gives us a lot of information about that time period. Some of those are also duplications of the Old Testament text, uh, but the Dead Sea Scrolls are very informative, and it gives us a window into the time that Jesus lived. But there were other texts that were written 
These are what we call the non The canon is the New Testament, what we have now. But there were non-canonical books, meaning that there were many books in circulation that didn't make it into the, the, the church decided, no, we're going we're gonna to have these four Gospels. There were actually like 25, maybe more, Gospels circulating around. There was the Gospel of Ruth, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of the Infancy, Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Gospel of Philip, the God, they, all these Gospels. And so out of all this, they picked these four. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so the non-canonical gospels that are floating around—they're—they're they're really interesting. They got some really fascinating stories. They're almost too fascinating, and that's probably why they didn't get in. <laughs> they didn't get into the Bible. <laughs> I mean, in the Gospel of Philip, for example, this—this uh, this is really kind of a weird. Do you know what a lacuna is? Uh, a lacuna. It, it, when you get an old manuscript, you know, and it, it's old and it's deteriorating, yeah. and you got to treat them really delicately. And a lacuna is—it means that there's either a hole, uh, you know, like a hole in the document, or it's unreadable, something smeared, or something's wrong, or it's missing. So in the Gospel of Philip, uh, here, let me see. I got it right here. I'm going to read this little story to you. Um, let's see, the Gospel of Philip, uh, chapter 63 says, And the companion of the Lord was Mary Magdalene. Ah, okay. <laughs> and okay. Uh, and then it says, The disciples said to him, Why do you love her more than all of us? Because he loved her more than all the disciples, and he used to kiss her often on the... And, a hole. and there's a lacuna. <laughs> there's a hole in the manuscript. He, Jesus used to kiss her off and on, the, and then we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> of all the places to have a lacuna. Oh, my gosh. It's funny. But anyway, that, you know, uh, it could have been on the lips, the forehead. I mean, we don't know. what. Uh, but anyway, it would have been nice to have that um, <laughs> that included. But then there's a go- the infancy gospel of Thomas. Where you have Jesus, this is a, a, a gospel about the childhood of Jesus. And when he's five years old, you know, he's doing all kinds of mischievous things. He has all his powers. He, uh-huh. he, basically, basically, he's killing people right and left. He bumps yeah, into but he a brought, wait, boy. wait, wait. He, he brought him back to life. Yeah, at the end. Yeah. yeah, but first he, he 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 because he repents and he thinks, oh, what have I done? And <laughs> but he yeah. basically as a kid, I mean, he bumps into a kid and he kills him. He says, "You dunderhead, you'll go no further," and he strikes him dead. You know, and and then the father complains to Joseph, and then he makes the father blind. You know, he blinds all these people, and he he kills one of his instructors, and uh, it, it's just all kinds of weird stories in there about Jesus. He was so terrible as a child. But then at the end of the gospel, he uh, he brings back everybody to life, brings them all back to life, and takes care of everything. So well, you can you see why that didn't make it, it in the good. Yeah, well, yeah you, but when well, you stop to think about it, that's typical of a five-year-old or or a young kid. Yeah, yeah, that would be. That's true. Yeah. I mean, but, but you, you can't. We can't depict Jesus as. <laughs> I mean that you know that. Well, here's another reason they don't include some of these books is that they're written much later. Okay. There, I mean, there, there's much, uh, there's a rule of thumb in in um, textual criticism. The further a document is from the event it is describing, the less reliable it is. 
just like the manuscripts that I was talking about, about the New Testament, the further out you get, the less reliable they become because people are changing them. They're uh, adding to them, exacerbating them, uh, exaggerating them, or putting in their own thing. And so uh, so they're less reliable the further out you get. So when you get into these non-canonical Gospels, a lot of them were written much later. Amos Gospel of Thomas, though, was written rather, even I think that was around 150, and that's not real late. Right, and, yeah. you know, you, you, you use a phrase often in your book, the early bird gets the worm. Um, right. So if if all of these texts were arranged chronologically, even the Old Testament, right? I mean, would the would the story be different? It would cause a lot of pause. Uh, <laughs> it would be <laughs> hard. It would be hard because even you can't even put the Gospels together uh, because there are a lot of books that were written between each Gospel. So the Gospel of Mark would be, you know, somewhere here, and then after three or four other texts, then you'd find the Gospel. It would be really hard. I think the church was wise to do it the way they did. The only information we have about because Paul doesn't talk about Jesus that much. What he says is important, but there's very little about Jesus in, in Paul's writings. And you have to remember that Paul didn't have the Gospels. None of them were written, so he didn't have any of those stories, at least not in writing. So uh yeah it's uh, but if you if you just put it the way in chronological in true chronological order it would be a little hard to follow and the gospels are the only basically the only information we have about Jesus there's very very little if uh a couple of statements about what the, the Roman senator called Christus and so he is mentioned outside the New Testament but there's really no information about Jesus all we have yeah, I mean, is what's in those Gospels. Yeah, and even Josephus didn't say that much about him. No, and what he did, and Josephus was a Jewish historian that lived uh, shortly after the time of Jesus, uh, and he did write about the Jewish history, very important. Uh, uh, his book's called The Antiquities. Uh, that, boy, I'm telling you, that guy really did us a favor because it helps us to understand that whole time period. But he does mention Jesus, yeah. He does in a, in a small paragraph. He he does re, uh, relate to him. Did did Mentioned not also him. Pontius Pilate write of him as well? Pon, no, Pontius Pilate did not write of him. No, we have nothing from Pontius Pilate. Huh. We have well, the so, story of Pontius Pilate washing his hands of of Jesus. Yeah. But no, we have we have very we have nobody writing about Jesus outside of the New Testament. We have references to Jesus outside of the New Testament, but very little said about him. So, but all he's of still course... recognized as a, he, he, very very few, if any, scholar would deny that Jesus was a historical person. He definitely was a historical person. That's pretty oh, well ab- determined. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just yeah. you know you kind of, and you know you you wonder then about the quotes of things he said if they're coming so far after his death well that's the other issue we know he lived historically but the question is for scholars can we get back to the real jesus this is what is called the quest for the historical jesus can we mm-hmm. really we know what his followers and those that came after him said some of his followers, what they said about Jesus. But can we get back to what Jesus actually said? 
and that's that's a whole different uh boy they, they've been arguing that since uh i don't know how long uh i think it was albert uh einstein not albert einstein um uh who am i thinking schweitzer yeah, Schweitzer. Thank you. The quest—I must be getting old. Uh, <laughs> it's the quest for the historical Jesus, which was written in the early part of the 20th century, and um, the first decade actually. And uh, he wrote uh, a book called *The Quest for the Historical Jesus*, which is a classic because it 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 raises all these questions about can we actually know the true words and sayings of Jesus? And uh, and scholars are still debating that because the books were written so far after, and we don't know how much doctoring they've had. And we don't have any of the originals. Like I said, 250 is the first Gospel of Mark that we have, and that's not, and that's not even a complete one. And we don't even have the full 27 books of the New Testament until the year 367, when Athanasius, who was a bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, he he's the first one to mark out the 27 books and that traditionally marks uh, the 27 books that we have in our in our New Testament today but that's that's over 300 years after and a lot of these documents you know we don't we don't have the originals and we don't know if they were changed and we don't we don't even know who wrote the gospels cuz the the gospel names on Matthew Mark Luke and John that those names were added to these uh documents in the second century uh the church to give them importance the church added these names uh there in 150 for example i think it was justin martyr who first refers refers to these books as the memoirs of the apostles they didn't have names at that and it was about 30 years they didn't have names at that time but about 30 years later then uh, I think it's Origen, the Church Father Origen, which eventually he does name them. He puts names to these books. Well, now we're in 180, somewhere around there. And uh, But up until that time, we think the books are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them, and we don't know the names of these people, obviously. Amazing. And, yeah, you know, it, I, it is, yeah. It's a fascinating story. Um, oh, it and is. It's fa- it's... And, 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 you know, the... You know, I don't want to take away from from the the pure spiritual message that that is attributed to him. I mean, if you take his words, you you have to realize that after two thousand years or whatever, that that his words are not what is now being preached in church. I mean, you, yeah, the, the well that that gets a little tricky here. But uh, Barbara, the thing that that scholars try to emphasize a lot is that religious scholars at least do this they say we may not know the exact words of Jesus we we may not some of these stories may have been embellished some of the stories may not even be accurate uh, or even belong in there there's one story that's definitely in, in the gospel of John that um, when you read a new translation you'll see it in brackets and that's the story of the woman who was caught in adultery and and uh, they the Pharisees come to Jesus and they want uh, they want him to stone her or not he mm-hmm. doesn't want him to stone her, but they're saying you know under the law of Moses this woman needs to be stoned and so he simply says he who is without sin let him cast the first stone and everybody goes away beautiful story yeah. but they're trying to trap him they figure if he says yeah that's the law of Moses go ahead and stone her 
then they've got him because he's a mean guy. But if he says, no, uh, don't do it, then he's violated the law of Moses, which is the sacred text of the Jews. So they think they're going to trap him, but he just simply says, those who are without sin, let them cast the first stone. So that's a beautiful story. But if you if you see it in the in the, in your new translations, it has brackets at the beginning of the story and brackets at the end of the story. When you see brackets in the New Testament, that means that that story does not appear in our earliest New Testament Greek documents. It was added at a later time. Probably never happened. But it doesn't matter. I love that story myself, and I, oh, I think yeah. to myself, you know, well, it came out of that time and out of the spirit of that time. And, and sometimes, even though if the story may not be right or the words of Jesus may not be right, what religious scholars say is that the essence of what Jesus was and what he taught, that's what the writers are trying to express. That's what the people of the time are trying to express, his essence, what he was, what he meant, what he tried to say. And that's what's important to take away. Um, there's a lot of good things in the New Testament that um, prove to be quite viable. I think it's oh, yeah, many no, of the parables. I, good stories, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of and, good ethical and moral teachings and things like that. Yeah, I hey, I'm all for that stuff. Um, I think I think what what gets me at least at this point in time is that the organizations that that are supposedly spreading the message that was there do not, in my opinion, do that. They're, you know, they're, they're institutions that have been set up for control of humanity as opposed to the education of humanity. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I also believe that there are a lot of genuine, and I know you believe this too, there are a lot of genuine good people in religious structures um, across the world, whether it's Christianity, Judaism, Islam, whatever, who are trying as best they can to communicate as best they can the central message of what they consider to be truth and uplifting within their religious structure. I mm-hmm. tend to be a little eclectic, uh, meaning that I, 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 I can see the value in different religious structures, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism. They all seem to have something beautiful to offer that might be missing in the other religion. <laughs> so, I mean, they're all they're all trying. Here's a here's what I think is a problem, Barbara. This is a real problem and I I used to get caught in this myself, but what happens to people is all of these to me, all of these religious structures that I just named, they're pointing to something. They're pointing to a spiritual realm. They're pointing to what they think is spiritual truth. They're, they're saying, hey, there's something beyond this. There's, there's got to be more than what we have. They're pointing. And what happens is that people fall in love with the structure instead of what the structure is pointing to. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, they, it's my way or the highway. They fall in love with the structure. If you're a Christian, for example, you say Christianity is the only way to God. Well, that's nonsense. Or if you're a Jew, you might say the same thing. That's nonsense. You can't be the only way to God. Say if you're the only way to God, there's going to be a lot of people in hell. That if there is a hell, <laughs> and that's <laughs> well, debatable I, I mean, too. But we won't get into that. I mean, when you go way, 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 way back, there were no religions. 
and and there were good people there and and the, sure, the, of you course. know and the i think we come go ahead no no well i you know most major religions and philosophies and traditions are based on the golden rule yes that's true and that's and true. that 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 is a fundamental basis teaching of all religions yes absolutely yes that yeah. that you know if if that is your truth and you follow that you are leading a spiritual life. Yes. And and I, and I, you know, people who quote you chapter and verse and don't understand what it means are doing nothing but being parrots. Exactly. And, you you know, there I think it was a philosopher, Poincare, or Poincare, I think he was French. Um, but he said the difference between people is not the difference between what they believe and don't believe, the difference between people is between those who care and those who don't. So I think mm-hmm. the way you live your life and how you express your kindness and, and your tolerance, and, and if you stay away from getting too dogmatic and I'm, this is the only way. I don't care if you're liberal or conservative. You know, you, you, you can know, have all the knowledge in the world, but that doesn't make you a spiritual person. It doesn't even make you a good person. It might help you get there, hopefully. Uh, and might lead you uh, away from bad kinds of theology and things, but but you know, but that's not that's not the, the whether you're liberal or conservative. It's it's how you live your life and what you're doing with it and how you respond and, and act with other people. That that's what's important. Oh, absolutely, and that's why, you know, I I, I came to a point where it, it was more important to be spiritual than it was to be religious. Yeah, and, and that, that's a good way of saying it. Yep. You know, it, it's not that it's not that I, you know, I think religions are great, and I think you, you know you're right. They they do do a lot of good in the world, but they also restrict people in their understanding of where we came from and how we came from there, and and the directions that we need to be, you know, that that are open to us to go in. Yeah. And yeah, I agree. I, I don't I, every. An individual. Everybody has their own independent truth, and they should they should be honored for that truth, not condemned if it doesn't conform to what is expected of them. That's right. Yep, I agree with you, hundred percent. Hey, did you you're you're into spirituality and that sort of thing? Uh, did, does that include? Have you ever gone to a séance or anything like that? I've conducted them. Yes. Really? I got to tell you <laughs> yes. one of my experiences at a séance. Okay. I I went one time. And I we were all we were in a circle and the the medium I guess was right right beside me and I, she, we were all holding hands and I was holding her hand. And everything was quiet and it was dark and then all of a sudden I mean all of a sudden she she went hysterical. She's right on you know I'm holding on to her here. She was hysterical, and she went. She started laughing. That's what I mean by hysterical. She was just laughing and laughing and laughing as hard as she could. And I, you know, the the lights came on. She kept on laughing, and I I shook her hand a little and tried to bring her out of it. She wouldn't. She just kept on laughing. So finally, and I hate to say this, but I I slapped her. You know, I just slapped uh-huh. her across the face. And then she she was startled, and she kind of woke up, and she looked at me, and she said, "Why did you do that?" And I said, because my mother always told me to strike a happy medium. 
Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to tell you that little joke. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good one. Well, wait, while you're while you're telling jokes, tell about the tell about the the monk that was copying the um, oh the Bible. I mean, if you're well, that, tell that jokes, tell a, that one. Oh, okay. Well, first we have to. Uh, I'm sure all your readers know they know what celibacy is. Celibacy is, I'm of sure. course, you can't have sex, and and uh, all the priests and everything. You 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 got to be celibate. Uh, so anyway, uh, that is an introduction. Uh, there's a story told about a monk who, the, again, this was back in the Middle Ages, and, and they were at the monastery, and they were copying uh, the old, the New Testament text. You know, you have to keep copying it because they wear out. So he was copying there, and he just thought for a moment. He said, yeah, you know, we keep copying these books. I wonder, I wonder if we have any of the old originals or at least close to the originals because maybe we're making mistakes. Maybe we should compare what we're doing here with what they did, you know, a couple hundred years ago. So he asked the the head guy uh, if there were any of these old uh, antiquated um, uh, texts around, manuscripts. He says, yeah, they're down in the basement. We keep them under lock and key. But if you want to see them, sure. So he gave him the key, and he goes downstairs. This was this poor guy, he was about 80 years old, and he goes down, and he unlocks the vault, and he goes in there and reads. Okay. Well, a couple of days go by. And uh, one of the guys upstairs says, hey, have you seen John? And he said, no, we sent him downstairs a couple of days ago, but he hasn't come back. Well, he hasn't come back. Maybe he had a heart attack or something. Well, we better go see what's happened. So all the uh, all the priests and the monks and everything, they all go down there, and uh, and there's John. And he's crying, and he's banging his head up against the wall. Oh, no. He said, oh, no. And it's, John, what's the matter? What's the matter? He said, look, look at this old text. Look at this word. The word said celebrate, not celibate. <laughs> 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 so and anyway. that could be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be something? All these poor guys, uh, too much. Well, no. Well, again, you know, when when your priesthood or those who are supposed to be teaching us um, religious facts um, aren't, it, you know, the 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 material is out there. And it's really important for people to check it out. I'm not telling people what to believe, but I am telling people, and, and even Jesus said somewhere, to question everything. And Hello, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Are you there? Oh, okay. Yeah, you were cutting out a little bit. I, uh, but I, I, you're back. That's okay. I heard you, okay. though. Um, so, so, you know, in questioning everything, that meant what he said. That meant what what you know somebody from the pulpit tells you and you know it's important to take it back i mean strong's concordance is right on is right on the um the internet you can i know one of the things one of the issues i had a couple of days ago was you know the the phrase that was attributed to jesus saying thou art peter and upon you shall will i build my, my church church right uh-huh so Churches then, everybody well, was a Jew. Yeah, everybody was Jewish. That's that's right. There was no Christianity, <laughs> and I I don't know if Jesus uh, 
you know, he was born a Jew, he lived a Jew, and he died as a Jew, and a lot of people don't realize that, or they realize it, but they don't really think that through. And, I mean, everybody's been so anti-Semitic over the historical record that, and you wonder what they, they, what they forget, that Jesus was a Jew? Yeah, well, uh, when you when you go back to um, to the concordance uh, and and you look at that word, church, it didn't mean church with a steeple. It meant assemblage. Yes, right. No, I see what you're saying there. Yes, that's right. Yeah, a lot of what happens is, uh, Barbara, that we we have a tendency to interpret first century the first century world in 21st century terms, because that's mm-hmm. the way we think. And we apply ideas and concepts to those ideas and concepts in the past, but they're totally different. And sometimes a concordance and a good uh, Bible dictionary and things like that would help. By the way, uh, Jesus Gate uh, has a lot of this information. The book that I wrote, Jesus Gate, has a lot of this information. Uh, if people are curious about biblical criticism and the things that scholars have found I think this book, what is it, 300 pages or so, but it's um, it, it will be very helpful if you're a beginner and you're just starting and you want to know what this information is all about. I mean, it, it spells it out. And I'm, I, it's not that I'm so knowledgeable, because I'm quoting about uh, 75 prominent scholars. So it's not just mm-hmm. my word. It, it isn't just my ideas here, but, uh, but I'm trying to get oh, that yeah. information out. And if if you go to my website, there's a section that says I highly recommend and there's a book section and Jesus Gate is there along with a link to where to get it on Amazon. Oh, great. That'll be fine. Yeah. Oh, I I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed your book. It just it was, you know, every I would hit something that was like, yes, I knew that. I knew I read it someplace else. And and now this makes far more sense to me and and you know he's he ernie's right it's not a religious book it's a book about religion and you know take take some time and educate yourself i'm not saying change your religion or you know or walk away from it or anything like that that you know people's faith in their belief system and their spirituality is totally unique unto them and and you know everybody should be honored um but but have a little bit of, you know, the history is fascinating. There's nothing wrong with understanding, you know, how, how Christianity was built on all of the, all of the faith belief systems that came before it. So of course there are connections. Of course there are similarities. Um, Christianity didn't just, you know, you know, burst forth from a seashell like Venus did. I mean, it, it, (laughs) it, it, it evolved and for its time, it was it was dangerous and it was beautiful and it was hopeful and and it, it gave people another way of of expressing their faith and living their faith and and what has happened to it over the centuries you know i'm not happy with it i think it's a big corporation now i mean at least at least churches and and it, i i don't think it truly to this day represents an expression of spirituality but but that's just for me. That's my own personal belief. So, you know, well, that's a good it, it, one, Barbara. I think you summed it up pretty well there. Um, uh, and I, but I, I also have hope in the church. I think it's it's it has the possibility of transformation, and I think it's going through a transitional period, and it'll have to 
become more of what you're talking about. Otherwise, it's it's going to die. I mean, it it is already having some problems. And uh, so, yeah, I uh, but I agree with what you just said. That was wonderful. I I think that that people are are more and more getting in touch with their own spirituality and there should be places where they can get together and share their philosophies and share their theories and work as groups to, to um, manifest a greater good for everyone. I I think that that's important. And, and it's, and today it's, it's, it's kind of tough and, and your book, you know, helps people to understand a lot of what's gone on and, and it, it, you know, Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and all of those guys, they were, they were amazing men with a story of peace, love, and, 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 and uh, compassion. And, you know, how many times does it, in how many centuries does it, does someone have to come forth with that, that concept to tell you that, that this is a better way of life. If you incorporate this into your life, it's, it's far richer and, and more full of love. Yeah. And everybody has to find their own way, you know, uh, it's, uh, and, and what's right for one person isn't necessarily going to be right for another. And I'll tell you another thing, no one's cornered the market on truth. I think there's, there's, there's truth to be found everywhere depending and, you know, more in some places than others, but, uh, there's a great deal of, of truth that can be found out there if one takes the time just to go look. And, uh, I think, uh, I think to be, you know, just, what do we, who, let's see. Oh yeah. It's an ostrich. They're the ones that stick their heads in the sand, right? Yes. <laughs> well, well, you know, having truth enhances your faith. Yes. Yeah, I think and, so too. A lot and, of people and, think that these things weaken your faith, but they don't. They push you into a different reality and a, a different form of struggle, and it makes you stronger, and it makes you you got to – the idea is to get in, in line with reality, not to be living in some fantasy that, that you have to explain later when you're getting older and it doesn't work, and you're trying to figure out why why is this happening to me. Uh you have to have a real understanding of, of reality from my perspective. But uh-huh. you don't have to think like I do. You just have to find that that niche for yourself that, that works for you. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you know and I think that it's you know, some people I mean, I know people who have never been to church and are the most spiritual people I've ever met. Yeah, and I know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's because, and I know PhDs that can't tie their shoes. So, yes. uh, you know, it's 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 sort of like you you need to you need to find that part of yourself that is that is spiritual and the spirit within you, and and then work with that aspect to manifest love and and compassion within your physical reality. And yep. it, it it doesn't have to be written down in a book to tell you how to do it. Um, to be honest with you, babies are born trusting and full of love. They are taught hate and, and they are taught uh, bigotry and they are taught fear. So, yep. so if you can reprogram yourself to go back to that time of birth when everything was beautiful and everything was love, I mean – you know, let's let's be honest. You have to protect yourself to a certain degree, or you're not going to make it very far. But well, that's but, for sure. Hey, Barbara, you know what? what? I can't believe this. 
We've been well, we on the phone two for hours. two hours and one minute and 45 seconds. Wow, you were right. Time really flies. It does. It, it You know, um, that said, yes, we should really tie this up. Um, I, I, your book is on Amazon. You can get, you can find a link to it on my website if you're, if you're lazy, or you can go right to, um, right to Amazon and, and type in Jesus Gate because I think there's only one. And I, I want to thank you so very much for being on the show with me because it really has been um, a true joy to be able to talk with somebody who speaks the same language. Well, Barbara, it's been a pleasure talking to you, too, and I uh, I think in a lot of ways we're on the same wavelength. I think we look at life in different ways, too, So, but that that's good. Uh, and uh, and listen, uh, um, if you, you know, Jesus Gate um, is, is just one of four books that I've written, so if your reader or if your listeners are interested in, in looking up uh, my other works, they can go to erniebringus.com. And um, and they can see everything I've written there. They might be interested in some other things. I also write about animals and things like that. I have a real affinity with animals. I just oh. I don't know why, but but I do. We, we may we may do an, we may have to do another book on it. I happen to be an animal person too. Oh my so. gosh, yeah. I mean, I I can see the whole universe in a little bird that's sitting outside of my door over here in my patio. I mean, I just wow. I'm, I, animals thrill me. I mean, I just they make my day to tell you the truth. And, well, uh, well, but yeah, I'm, maybe someday we can talk about that. I the, the the book that I have on there is called Created Equal. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's out of print now, but I think you can get used copies. Um, but anyway, that's all about the it's really about the equality of species that I, I okay, make an yeah. argument for. So, but anyway, well, that's will, another story. All right, we will well, check Barbara, it out. I, yeah, again, it's it's been a real pleasure, and uh, I hope we get to chat again sometime. I'm sure we will. Thanks for thanks for being here and thanks for uh, chatting for two whole hours. You thought it would be too long. I know. <laughs> oh, I almost forgot. Where do I send the bill? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, send it. To, okay. Send it to um. Send it to the head of your church, whoever that is. Okay. All right, Barbara. You take care of yourself. You too. Bye bye now. All right. Bye bye.